Well, one of uh, my wife Lindsay's Mother's Day gifts <clears throat> required some assembly. And so uh, yesterday afternoon, I got out into the garage. Lindsay and I have four uh, sons. And so we all got out there to assemble uh, the gift. And uh, it, was, it was quite an ordeal to sort of manage that, that project. There was maybe seven or eight pieces that needed to come together, four or five screws and some dowel and some carpenter's glue. But we, we managed to uh, assemble it, and hopefully it will remain uh, that way, not just today, but uh, in the days to come. Uh, if you want to build something, it requires a sense of order. A building is a structure, and so if you want to build a structure, you need to have a structure around how you're going to build it. I needed to delegate the responsibility of who's doing the gluing, and who's doing the screwing, and who's reading instructions, and who's holding things in place. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we've been going through a series called Church at a Crossroads. It's studying a letter in the New Testament uh, called 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote several letters back and forth to this church in a city called Corinth, and uh, we have two of the letters that are preserved in, in the New Testament. And Paul's major metaphor for describing what the church is supposed to do is building up. He mentioned it in chapter 3, verse 10, that he was the master builder who laid the foundation to try to deflate the people who were puffed up and who were arrogant. He used the building metaphor and challenged them to make sure that they weren't puffing themselves up, but that they were thinking about their neighbor and building up the church. And here in chapter 14, where we find ourselves today, as he's been talking about spiritual gifts and the sort of supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit, he keeps coming back to, he's mentioned it five or six times, you've got to build up, build up, build up. So if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, the title for today's message is Orderly Worship. And let me just read to you the first verse of this passage and the last verse. Verse 26 says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. There's the metaphor. Whatever we do in church needs, needs to have one purpose, and that's to build one another up. And then look down at verse 4. But all things should be done decently and in order. If, if you're going to build something, there needs to be a sense of order. There needs to be a sense of structure that goes into building a structure. Now, a couple of months ago when we were talking about leaven and yeast and dough, I, I reached out to a baker in our church to sort of let, let me know. And, and, uh, and, and so uh, as I was getting ready for this Sunday, I, I connected with a bunch of builders in our church. I connected with the engineer who helped manage the project of actually building this facility. He actually goes to, a, he goes to this church now. And I talked to a guy who uh, uh, manages the construction of skyscrapers in downtown Toronto. I talked to a father and son combination that build bridges that go over highways, and, and I said, talk to me about the process of building, and they all, they all mentioned and shared how if you're going to build something, you need to have organization. You need to have your, your, your materials organized. You need to make sure that things are happening in the right order. You need to have a plan and continually come back to that plan. Building requires order. 
some of them shared that, that if, if, if you're off on just you know, an eighth of an inch at the bottom, and if that continues and repeats itself on the bridge or on the building or on the skyscraper, you're multiple feet off to the side. That everything needs to line up. And if the guys who want to, to pour the asphalt over the bridge are in a hurry to get that done before the guys finish pouring the concrete, you're not going to have a bridge. You're just going to have a, a mound because it'll fall apart. And if you're building a skyscraper and the plumbers want to get ahead of what the electricians are doing or the tilers are racing ahead of the drywallers, people can't actually do what they're supposed to do and it creates chaos. Paul is looking at the way the church at Corinth was worshiping, and he said, what you guys need is order. He, he, he has been talking in chapter 14 about the difference between uninterpreted tongues, I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute, and prophecy. He's been doing that for 25 verses, and now he's moving from the why to the what, He's established the principle of we're all supposed to be here to build each other up. Now he's moving from the principle to the practical. He's saying, so here's what this should look like on a Sunday morning when you come, when you come together. So he starts off in verse 26, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now, what was going wrong at Corinth was, listen, there's nothing wrong with having people come with all of these things to share. What was happening at Corinth is everyone was sharing all at once at the same time. This person has a song they want to sing. This person has some sort of supernatural expression through tongues. This person has a prophecy. This person has a sermon that they've written. This person wants to pray. And rather than having each person take their turn... It's like the church at Corinth had forgotten kindergarten. They had forgotten the idea of just order, the way for us all to get along, and the way for all of us to benefit from being together is through order. And what we're going to see from this passage is that our God is a God of order. And if we're going to worship a God of order, our worship must be orderly. And Paul really has two major recommendations that he's making to the church here. The, the first one is, it's, it's kind of crazy that he's, he's, he's actually doing this, but he's, the first thing he's trying to do is to prevent anarchy. <laughs> you wouldn't necessarily expect that to be in a sermon, but that's, that's point one of the sermon. So if you're taking notes today, Paul was, is writing this to prevent anarchy. He's trying to prevent everyone from just sharing anything they want to share all at once. And he begins in verse 27 by saying, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three in each in turn and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and let and speak to himself and to God. Now, what does Paul mean when he says speaking in a tongue? If you weren't here last week, let me just bring you up to speed. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins, and then ascended up into heaven. A couple of weeks later, there was this big feast. It was called the Feast of 50 Days, the Feast of Pentecost. The whole city of Jerusalem was filled with people from all over the world. And the, the believers in Jesus, still this relatively small group, a little over 100, were praying together in this room. And then all of a sudden, there's like this sound of this rushing wind. 
And then what's described as tongues of fire, these little flames of fire started floating all around them and settling over the heads of the people. Now, fire and wind were sort of Old Testament metaphors, even metaphors that Jesus and John the Baptist used to describe the Holy Spirit. And then these these early Christians on that day of Pentecost began to have the ability to speak in languages that they, have never, that they had never learned before. They were just instantaneously given this. It was a miracle. They could just speak in a different language. Then they go outside and they start declaring the mighty works of God. And because this big feast is happening, there's people who have come to worship, but they're from all over. They speak all different languages and they're hearing their own language Declaring the mighty works of God. And that's really how the whole Christian message got started after Jesus rose from the dead. And so when Paul says tongues, it could be describing that. That these languages, this supernatural ability to speak in human languages known around the world, that that continued on in Corinth. And if you believe that that gift continues on today, then that gift can continue on today. That speak, people speak actual languages. Others think that, uh, it mentions in chapter 13, verse 1, the tongues of angels. And uh, chapter uh, 14, verse 3 talks about, 14, verse 2 talks about mysteries of the Spirit. Other people think that what was happening in Corinth was something that was different from the day of Pentecost. That it was like this heavenly language. And that it wasn't an earthly language that regular everyday people spoke. Paul's main concern, he doesn't define which kind of tongue it is. If it's a national, actual language, or is it a heavenly language, it's not overtly clear. But what he is clear about is that they need to be interpreted and they need to be understood. Now, the main culprit for the chaos in Corinth was this gift. People thought, as soon, I don't know what it feels like to to have, some, some of you do know what it feels like to have a tongue come to you. And these Corinthians, as soon as they felt a tongue, whatever, coming or God speaking to them through a tongue, they felt like they had no choice but to shout it out. And what would happen is everyone would start shouting it out at the same time. And someone else is trying to lead a Bible study and someone says, well, you're all shouting. I don't know what's going on over there. So I'll just pray over here. And it was just chaos. The the, the church wasn't coming together. They were all going in different ways directions. The church is supposed to be a body. The body, you know, works together, supports each, each organ, each limb. We're not supposed to be going in all these different directions. So Paul here lays out, this is, this is how tongues is supposed to work. If you're going to have tongues in your church, he says in verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three, or at most three, each in turn, and let someone Interpret. So here's the breakdown. Here's the rules for tongues in church. Two or three at most, each in turn, let someone else interpret. So, now some of you might have seen some things on TV or on YouTube or maybe you've even visited another church where everyone is making these noises. People are running up and down the aisles. This guy's lying on the floor. This person's making animal sounds. And you're wondering, is this, is this in the Bible? This is not in the Bible. That if you feel like you have to speak in tongues, you check and make sure, have two or three people already spoken? Because if not, then I got to wait my turn. Or I got to wait till next week. 
You don't have to share everything that, that comes up, each in turn, and someone must be there to interpret. Now, earlier in chapter 14, Paul said, you, you could actually have the gift of interpretation. You could interpret your own tongues. But it's not, church is not supposed to be a free-for-all. It's not supposed to be everyone at once. It's supposed to be orderly. Two or at most three, not everyone all at once. And each one can wait. If you feel like you have a tongue or whatever it feels like to feel like you want to share a tongue, you don't just interrupt whatever is happening. You wait your turn. And you only share if someone is there to interpret. If you don't have the gift of interpretation or if someone isn't able to interpret it, look what it says in verse 28. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Notice the, the control that Paul assumes the tongue speaker has that the tongue speaker is able to control because ultimately it's not about them expressing what they want to express. Ultimately, it's about building up the body. It doesn't build up the body to have multiple people talking all at once. So he wants to prevent anarchy in terms of tongues and then secondly, he wants to prevent anarchy in terms of prophecy. Prophecy. Now, prophecy in the Old Testament or how most of us think about prophecy, we think about people like Elijah or Ezekiel or Isaiah. These were prophets who were writing scripture, like what they said got written down as the Bible and they were predicting the future. And, they, and accurately, and they were saying things like, thus says the Lord, when I speak, I'm speaking the very words of God. Now, when Paul uses the term prophecy, he's, he's not describing that. Back in, in chapter 14, verse 3, he said that there's three things that prophecy is supposed to do. New Testament prophecy, it's the upbuilding of the church, we've already talked about that, encouragement, and consolation. So the, the prophet who speaks or prophecy in the church today is not people saying, get out your pens. I'm, this is Revelation chapter 23. I'm adding to the Bible. No. And he's not saying, here's what's going to happen in the leaf game later tonight. He's not predicting the future. And he or she is certainly not saying, thus says the Lord. No, prophecy there were rules for how that was supposed to work too because, again, you would have anarchy if you have people trying to say, I'm speaking from God. No, I'm speaking from God. So look with me at verse 29. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. Let me break down what he's saying. It's very similar to tongues. Verse 29, two or three. Verse 31, one at a time. And then that says verse 31, but that should be verse 29. Let the others weigh what is said. So the, the same thing applied. If you think you have a prophecy, but you're the fourth person, sorry, wait till next week. This isn't thus says the Lord kind of stuff because if it was thus says the Lord, then by all means you would have to share it. But it's, it's not the same. You, talk, you read Jeremiah, how he had a fire in his bones and he had to speak the word of God. 
No, wait till next week. Just two or three. You're number four. Sorry, take a number. Come back next week. It's a totally different scenario. And one at a time. And notice that you have, you've got to weigh what's being said. No one in the church gets to speak with unquestionable authority. Again, you might have seen this on TV where someone says that they are a prophet and they are speaking the very words of God. And then they say things like, I believe that I have a revelation from God and God has given me this burden that I need to share and what God wants me to do is to share with you that I need a private jet. Someone needs to weigh what's being said. Someone, some other people with some spiritual maturity need to look at what this guy's saying and be like, private jet, no. The people on TV, people in churches in our fine city claim to be prophets. And part of their claim, what, what goes along with it is that no one can ever question them. Because they're God's anointed and they speak for God. Meanwhile, if they read their Bibles, they would know that if they claim to be a prophet, then by definition, people must weigh what they've said. That it should not be automatically trusted. Let me, let me give you a couple of other New, New Testament examples. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Do not despise prophecies. So prophecy is an important part of the church. Don't despise them, but test everything. Weigh it. 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world and gone out into YouTube and gone out into television. It needs to be weighed. you got to ask We've got to ask these people, who is weighing what you're saying? Who are you accountable to? It's very, very important for us to understand this. No one gets to speak with unquestionable or unchallengeable authority. A Michael Green, a pastor, a theologian, lays out seven really helpful criteria if we ever find ourselves in a situation where someone says they, they're speaking a, a, a word from God or they're speaking prophecy, the, these are the questions we should ask ourselves. Number one, does it glorify God rather than the speaker, church, or denomination? Does it accord with Scripture? Does it build up the church? Is it spoken in love? Does the speaker submit himself or herself to the judgment and consensus of others? in spiritual humility? Are they allowing what they're saying to be weighed? Is the speaker in control of him or herself? Is there a reasonable amount of instruction or does the message seem excessive in detail? Are they just rambling on and on and on? Notice how Paul mentions this in verse 30. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. So. Some people picture tongues and prophecy like this. It's like a boulder rolling down the hill. Like once it starts, you can't stop it. 
Once the spirit takes control, I don't know, I can't stop. No, that's not what Paul says. Just be silent. Be silent and don't even start if you're the fourth person and not the second or the third. Or if you're in the middle of something, but someone else somehow signals, as it says in verse 30, someone else raises their hand, you can just stop. You, you can remain under control. I, I just heard they're bringing back Avatar, like the movie. And, and sometimes we think about the Holy, Jameson and I were talking about this, some of us think about the Holy Spirit. Some of you are like, you don't know what Avatar is. I'm like, That's good, you didn't miss much in the first one. But this idea that like someone can be taken over by someone and then whatever you do, they do. Some of the older generation might remember the movie Ghost where, remember Whoopi Goldberg and Patrick Swayze and, and Whoopi, all of a sudden Whoopi Goldberg would become Patrick Swayze and whatever Patrick Swayze wanted to say or wanted to do, she had no control. Some of you are lost. Don't bother seeing the movie. Some of us think that tongues is like that and prophecy is like that. That's not true. If you're out of control, you're not being controlled by the Spirit. Look at what it says in verse, in verse 32. The spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. The person that is prophesying the, the, the spiritual work that the Holy Spirit is doing in their spirit is subject to the prophet. The prophet can start it or stop it. The Holy Spirit doesn't barge in. He doesn't overpower and override us. He works with us. He works with our spirit. He works with our will. And so if you've lost control, then you're not being controlled by the spirit. And then Paul sums it all up in in verse 33, he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. He's not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Think about who God is. We already sung about it, that God is uh, Father, Spirit, and Son. There is one God, yet there are these three persons that relate to one another. Three in one, that's what Trinity means, three in one, tri-unity. And yet there's no confusion in God. There's no chaos in the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. There is perfect peace. There's never any disagreement. There's, there's perfect peace. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit always work in perfect harmony with one another. They share one will. Think about, think about creation. When God created the universe, if you go back to read Genesis, what, what is God doing? He's taking the, the darkness and the water. He's taking two symbols in ancient Near Eastern culture of chaos. And he's bringing order. He's separating the water from the water. He's, he's taking the light and, and piercing the darkness. He's creating land. He's taking the chaos and he's bringing order. Our God is a God of order. So think about the Trinity, think about creation, and then think about salvation. 
When, when God establishes this rescue mission, the Father sends the Son who is conceived by the Spirit, and the Son glorifies the Father by speaking the words that the Spirit gives to him and performs miracles, and then the Father bears the wrath of God for sin and is buried, and then he's raised by the power of the Spirit, and then the Son ascends, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit to glorify the Son to the glory of the Father. There's, it's completely ordered. That's how salvation works. And just like in creation, and just like we heard in Ken and Livia's testimony today, God takes the chaos and the confusion of our lives. Did you notice how Kenneth said, even though he was so successful, even though things were going his way, there was this chaos in his heart. There was this, this anxiety, this angst. And it was the gospel, it was salvation that brought him peace. Salvation is taking the brokenness of our sin and, and rebuilding us into something that is, that is ordered. That's the God that we worship, and so our God is a God of order, so our worship must be orderly worship. So what does this, what does this mean for us as a church? I think we're doing pretty good in the orderly department, like no one has interrupted me so far. You know, no one came up on the stage while we were singing songs. And so, I, although Paul is warning us about, you know, swinging way over to the Corinthian side, I wonder if our church services are a little too ordered. Because if you go back to verse 26, how he started this off, he says, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, and an interpretation. I'm afraid that our church and a lot of churches in North America are a lot like going to a restaurant, but God's intention is that it would be like a potluck dinner among friends. Like at a restaurant, you just sort of have a handful of professionals who are, you know, welcoming people and then cooking the food and giving it out and all of that sort of thing. And then, but at a potluck, you know, everyone brings something, and it reflects a little bit of their own personality, their own culture, their own likes and dislikes. And I, I would like to see us as a church, whether it's on Sunday morning or in our small groups or our men's ministry or women's ministry, that, that I'd, I'd like to see us have a little bit more structured spontaneity. Like, we're not going Corinth style, but I think we need to think about what it would look like for us to have each person bring something to the service when we come together. But Paul's main aim is, is to prevent anarchy, and then the second one goes closely with it. He, he, wants to, he wants the church at Corinth to respect authority. He wants them to respect authority. Now, stick with me here, because these next couple of verses are kind of challenging. The, the middle of verse 33 starts a new paragraph in the ESV translation. It says, as in all the churches of the saints, comma, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 
Now, some of you are thinking, well, yeah, I've, I've heard about this uh, before uh, as well. I saw something about this on TV, or I read The Handmaid's Tale, and I, I, I know that, you know, churches are really just, they're just oppressive places, or just trying to put women down. And look at the, here it says right here in the Bible that a woman can't even speak in church. I object. Well, again, just hang with me here for a minute. Does anyone here know the three laws of real estate? Any real estate agents here? There, there's three laws of real estate. Who knows it? Shout them out for me. Right. That's the three laws of real estate. Location, location, location. The three laws of Bible interpretation are very similar to the three laws of real estate. Context, context, context. And what is context? It actually is location. Where are the, if you were just to read these verses in isolation, then we'd have a problem. But if we read them in their context, then we'd have some more clarity. So the context of what he's talking about is prophecy. So we have the immediate context of the passage that we're reading. We also have the context of the whole book. This isn't the first time Paul has talked about prophecy. In, in chapter 11, Paul goes on for 16 verses about what women should do, even how women should dress appropriately when they are prophesying. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. I don't have time to get into what that means, but you just need to understand that Paul assumes and invites females to prophesy and to pray. You can't prophesy or pray without speaking. So he's not saying as a blanket statement that women are not allowed to speak in church. In the book of Acts, again, context. Paul, in Acts chapter 21, him and his traveling companions entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with them. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. He probably went to church on Sunday while he was visiting Philip and his family, and he probably heard these women prophesy. So he's not outlawing speech. So let's take a closer look at the context. What has he just, so he's been talking about prophecy in general, what has he just finished talking about? The weighing of prophecy. You know, maybe you shouldn't buy a private jet. The weighing of prophecy. Who should speak in those moments? And Paul's answer to that question is, that is a time for the men to speak. Women may speak in prophecy. They may speak when, they, when, when they're praying. But God, in creating the world, has established an order. If you notice the book of Genesis, everything kind of has its partner. There's day and there's night. There's water and there's land. There's earth and sky. There's sun and moon. And there's male and there's female. And they're, they're so similar and yet they are so different and distinct and they complement one another. And that's God's design and God's intention. And as the story unfolds in the book of Genesis, we see Adam was created first and then Eve was created out of Adam's side, right from a rib, right close to her heart. Right close to his heart, sorry. 
But it says in Genesis 1 that both of them were created equally in the image of God. The first words Adam ever said to Eve when he first saw her was, you're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We're equal. We belong to one another. It also says that Adam was put in the garden. He was created outside the garden and put in it. And it was Adam's job to keep the garden. That word keep doesn't just mean to, you know, like till the soil and like water. The word keep means to guard, like a goalkeeper in a, in a soccer game is guarding the goal. Adam was given the job to guard the garden, to guard his wife. The, the rule of, hey, you can eat from any tree you want, just don't eat from that tree, that wasn't given to Eve, that was given to Adam. And even though Eve was the first one to eat the forbidden fruit, God didn't come looking, hey, Eve, where are you, Eve? No, he, he went, he called out for Adam. And it was Adam who had to give accountability. And so in the home and in the church, there is this established, there is this sense of order and authority. It doesn't mean that women are lesser than men or anything like that. They're equal, but they're not the same. That's why Paul says, he, he makes reference to the law in verse 35. It's not in the Ten Commandments that women can't speak or that women can't have certain levels of authority. When he's talking about the law, that's like a catch-all term for the whole Old Testament. He's talking about Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3. Now, you might be thinking, well, I, I disagree with that. I think a woman should be able to do anything that they want to in marriage or in, in church. They don't need to be under the leadership of of men, and I understand. I mean, we were all brought up as sort of in a culture, in a school system, and an entertainment culture that just kind of continually hits us with this idea that girls can do anything boys can do. And in a sense, that is true. But we know biologically there are certainly things, on Mother's Day, we can remember this, there are biologically things that men can't do that women can do. We're, men and women are not the same. And so we've all been brought up in this culture that men and women are basically the same and essentially the same. It's all the same, it's all the same, it's all the same. And Christians, for the last, you know, several, uh, 50 or 60 years, as, as this message has got stronger and stronger, it wasn't that controversial for us in the past to say things like, well, men and women are different. But then it was the second part that Christians would have to say, and that men and women have different roles. That was where the controversy had started. But now the controversy starts when Christians say that men and women are different. And I guess all, all I would ask, if this is sort of news to you or offensive to you, this idea that, that women would not play the same role in church or in home as a man, again, probably understand that has a lot to do with your upbringing and your education and the entertainment you consume. And we understand that, but you just need to, okay, so where is all that leading? And what, what did that mean 50 years ago and the battles that were won? And some of those were really important battles and we're thankful for those things. And so some of those, now, so now what battles are being fought? And what boundaries are being broken now? And where is all of this going? And are you trusting in something that is completely fluid and always changing, or are you trusting in something that is eternal? That's what Christians are trusting in. It doesn't make us popular in today's day and age, but our aim is not popularity. Our aim is faithfulness to what the Word of God teaches. It says here that the, the woman should... Uh, Check with her husband at home. If she has any questions, let her ask her husband. Again, Paul is, he, 
women in Corinth, because the Roman world was so oppressive towards women, which we don't understand. People think that Christianity is impressive. Christianity was a rescued women from a culture of oppression, not just in the Roman world, but in just about every other culture in the world where Christianity goes, women flourish. But in Corinth, because the women were experiencing this freedom and this autonomy that they never had before, read the chapter on sex in in, in, in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. It's radical in terms of the, the dignity and autonomy that's given to women. But women were enjoying this so much that it was overflowing into other areas of the life. So in public settings, when women were criticizing what men were saying or what their husbands were saying publicly or even questioning, that was... That was an issue. Now, I don't have time to take you there right now, but those of us who have been studying 1 Corinthians for a long time, you'll remember the name Apollos, right? Paul was the original pastor there in Corinth. Then a new guy, Apollos, was there. In Acts chapter 18, when Paul leaves Corinth, Apollos goes to Ephesus, and Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team, are there in Ephesus. Apollos was this gifted speaker, but his theology was a tiny bit off. And then a husband and wife, Priscilla and Aquila, taught and instructed Apollos in a private setting with respect for authority. Again, it's all about context. The the, the context of, of when someone speaks or how they speak or who is present when they when they speak. So Paul's aim is that the church, to prevent anarchy, was to make sure that they respected authority, authority between men and women. And then lastly, authority between the church and the apostles. The authority between the church and the apostles. You see, what was happening in Corinth, they they thought that they had it going on. They thought that they were the greatest church ever. And they thought that they could make up their own rules and establish their own processes. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You, you need to respect the authority of the apostles. Jesus entrusted his message to a group of people called apostles. That means the sent one. He sent them out into the world to spread the message. Paul says in verse 36, was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Look at at how Paul thinks about his own writing. He says, what I'm writing is a command from God. He's not saying, here's some suggestions to make your church service more lively and effective. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I have a command for God, from God, that what you're doing is not honoring to God and you need to knock it off. And he says, if you claim to be spiritual or you claim to be a prophet, he says, you, you, you have to acknowledge my apostolic authority. Paul has been getting at this all throughout the book. In chapter 3, he, he used the metaphor of him as a farmer who planted the seed and then a builder who laid the foundation. He said that he's like their father of, of their faith. He's a parent to them. He, he said that in chapter 11, verse 23, he delivered to the, the Corinthians what he had received from the Lord. That's what an apostle is. He received the message, and then he delivered it. He was sent to deliver it to the 
uh, to the unreached people that eventually became the church at Corinth. Paul says you gotta recognize this. You gotta recognize that what I'm saying is a command from the Lord. So how do we apply this in our day and age? We don't have apostles anymore. We already covered that several weeks ago. So how do we make sure that we're following apostolic authority? Well, we're doing it right now. We're studying a letter that was written by one of the apostles. And this is our authority. We don't, we don't decide what a church service should look like. The apostles' authority decides. We don't decide how men and women should relate to one another. The apostolic authority decides. We don't make it up as we go along. That leads to confusion. Following the apostolic authority leads, leads to order. You know, the, the one builder, his name is Alex, and he helps manage um, the construction of skyscrapers. And he, he's, so he's always kind of working between the architects and the builders and the developers, and then he's always working with the government and the tradespeople and the unions and all of that. And he's always asking the architect and the developer, please just give it to me in writing. Because if I have it in writing, then they have to listen to me. If I can show them the document, then they have, and, and, and that's, that's what we need to do as a church. We, well, where is it in writing? Where is the actual authority coming from? Because if not, if you don't have it in writing, if Alex doesn't have it in writing when he's talking to the electrician or to the plumber or to the, to the welders, if he doesn't have it in writing, then it's just my word against your word. And whoever shouts the louder, welcome to 2022. But if we could get it in writing from the developer, from the owner, and that's what we have in God's word. We, we have the commands from the Lord, this is how we are to live. So then he sums up in verse 39. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Paul is always concerned that the pendulum's gonna swing too far in one direction. He's concerned that people are gonna read this letter and be like, yeah, prophets, you be silent forever now. For, don't worry about two or three, how about zero? No, he says, no, eagerly desire to prophesy. And don't despise speaking in tongues. Don't rule out that God might still want to work in that way. Don't let the fact that other churches at other times have misused these gifts, don't make it such that that means we don't get to benefit from them. And then he says in verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. Structured spontaneity, that's what we're going after. You know, after the service, at some point, you're gonna go out this driveway, you're gonna head uh, down 10th line and head home or to a restaurant or something like that. And you know what, when it comes to driving, like, we're, we're thankful for some structure. We're thankful for painted lines on the parking lot where we knew where to, where to park. We're thankful that, for the most part, people drive on the right side of the road. We're thankful for that stoplight at the end. We're thankful that there's sidewalks and crosswalks for pedestrians. We're thankful for some structure, right? Because if, if we didn't have that, what would we have? We'd have anarchy. People driving on the wrong side of the road, making a left turn out of the right lane, and, and pedestrians walking down the center of the street. And some of you are like, I live in Brampton. That's like that every day. Well, yeah, it's true. But there are times, aren't there, right, where we're sitting at a, at a red light at like three in the morning, and we're going north-south, and there's not a soul going east-west, Right? And the structure at that point is, is frustrating. It's cumbersome. 
But we gotta be thankful that there, is, that there is structure. We can't always have it both ways. But we could have too much structure. We could have a stoplight at every intersection. You could have to fill out a form every time you wanted to go to the grocery store. You could have a rule where only blue cars and white cars can drive on Tuesdays and only red cars and gray cars can drive on Thursdays. Like, there could be more structure. And that would be bad. We, we, we like the structure that we have when we drive. We like being able to go where you want. You just gotta stay on the right side of the road and you gotta stop at the red light. We, we like structure, but we also like spontaneity. And that's what we want to do as a church. You can't put God in a box, as C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia. Aslan is not a tame lion. So we can't be so structured such that we shut all the doors and lock out Jesus. Because he moves in mysterious ways. And so we need to be open to the supernatural. We need to be open to the spontaneous. We, we, we set out wood and stone. We, set, we lay out an altar. It'd be nice if we had some fire every now and again. But we need structure to go with the spontaneity. Otherwise, it's chaos. We, we serve a God who, who, who does new things, who makes all things new, and yet we serve a God who is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. A God who is a God of order and a God of peace. And so our worship should be a worship that is orderly and filled with peace. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us. There is a lot that we still need to learn and grow in when it comes to properly honoring you in our worship. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to reflect on your character, on your essence, on your, on your glory, and on your works, in your work of creation, in your work of salvation. Lord, you have brought us all together from different backgrounds and different temperaments and different personalities and different cultures. And you have given us all different kinds of gifts. We've zeroed in on two today, prophecy and tongues, but there's a plethora of unique gifts that you've given to the church. And so God, I pray that you would draw us near to you and allow us to honor you, not just in the words that we sing, but in the way that we approach worship. Help us to grow in this way. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.